begin this morning with a new podium. That's good. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> we begin in chapter 5. We're going to hopefully finish up. I think we will this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And we were looking at these six antitheses that Christ puts forth in His teaching here. I thought it was interesting as I was began studying this information and looking at a, a, a good bit of information, uh, I thought, regarding love. And then I would hit upon a couple of commentaries. They actually title this section, Hate. Okay? So I guess it depends upon whether you're a you know, glass is half full or <laughs> glass is half, half empty type of person. Of course, the applications are both there. Love and hate, you can't consider one really without the other. And we like talking about love. Well, the Bible is just, it is a book of love. And it's a, a book that tells us that God himself is love. That if it were not for him, we wouldn't have any love. He is love. That's one of his defining attributes, if you will. When Christ was teaching here and addressing the Pharisees and Sadducees and various Jews and just those who were faithful to Judaism, and remember, these were people who, who, who got their message from the example of those that they held in high esteem in the Jewish community. And they, of course, reflected the traditional rabbinic teachings that had occurred over hundreds of years. So he's still dealing with this. And so we're up to the sixth example here that Christ puts forth to do some some very in-depth teaching. And as always, this, as we said, is to grab the person's heart. It's to cause the person who's listening to these words to look deep within themselves and really evaluate uh, why they respond the way they do. Again, I, I use the word feel, but how they feel about certain issues because whatever's down in the heart we know is eventually going to come out. Is it not? Come out the mouth. So number of principles would apply here. But that's what he's trying to do. And, he, and of course, this is, this is Jesus Christ speaking. And I, I like to, as I've looked, looked and read through this, I try to keep that in my mind. That it's just as if he's sitting there and I'm in this audience, this same audience, and he's speaking to me to examine my heart. And again, here he's touching on issues that are ingrained in people. From a religious perspective, they think they are right in what their or whatever position they're holding on any of these six issues. You remember a murder, adultery, divorce, and we talked about vows and oaths, that was the fourth one. We talked about retaliation and revenge, and now today, love and hate. So this in no small portion, is what life's about in, in many cases. How we think, how we feel, the way that we respond to people. So from chapter 5, beginning with verse 43, he says, You have heard it said, that it was said rather, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What in the world is he talking about? So he begins again with this, you've heard it said. And again, a reflection on that traditional rabbinic teaching. Okay, He uses the same introductory formula for all six of these issues that he puts forth. He does the same with the previous five. 
So he's not disputing the Old Testament. The statement that he makes here, in part, is right from the Old Testament, but not entirely. And it shows how the Jews have taken this, the, the religious community of Jews, they've taken this and changed it for different reasons. They've either changed it by taking something out of the original Scripture, or they've changed it by adding something. Now, when he says, you shall love your neighbor, this is actually right out of Scripture. In fact, it's a verbatim quote if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know, it's the Septuagint. You look at that, you see, you see it word for word. But he continues on and adds this at the end here, that they're saying you're not only supposed to love your neighbor, but you're also supposed to hate your enemy. They believe that. And they believed that even from a religious perspective that that was the right thing to do. That was the example. You might say that was the godly thing to do. However, Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. So this is part of the Scripture that they had left out. Now, he speaks of a neighbor here. And we have an answer to that from Scripture, do we not? Who is my neighbor? Jesus answered this question. This question was put to him, and we have it in Luke chapter 10, This question was put directly to him, and he was given opportunity to answer that. Let's go back and look at that just for a moment. If you want to go to Luke chapter 10, verse 25, because here you have a particular, a specific issue at hand, and Jesus has addressed this specific question to him. It says in verse 25 of chapter 10, you know the account, but let's look at it specifically this morning. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, And teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. When he saw him, he he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, 
and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to him who fell into the robber's hands? And of course he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. Go and do the same. So Christ has an answer. And Christ has an example from the Word here in Luke chapter 10 when we consider who is our neighbor and how we are to treat them. And what would constitute a, a rightful, a loving, neighborly, if you will, response to somebody. Christ gives us this example. And of course, if we were going to go through this passage here, <clears throat> we could spend yet another lesson just doing that. But just a couple of key phrases out of this passage, and I hope that they jumped out to you as I was reading them. What made the difference here, I think, is what you find at the end of verse 34 in chapter 10 of Luke. For it says that he felt compassion for this person. He felt compassion. Is that not the struggle oftentimes when we're considering perhaps responding in a loving way, if you will, or responding in love toward a neighbor, and when that word neighbor pops up in our mind, what's, what do you normally think of? You think of a very narrow group, probably. Very narrow, probably starting with family, and then church family perhaps, or some order, maybe not necessarily that order. But you have it already in your mind who your neighbor is. Christ is talking about somebody that you're traveling, and you're going down the road, and they're in destitute, they're in need. Do we have compassion? There's no opportunity to check out this person's character or to check out whether they have a job or not or if they're faithful in their family relationship. It doesn't have anything to do with that. And it says that he had compassion on him. Do we, do we feel like our efforts are lost sometimes because all we can do is respond to somebody's immediate need. I mean, even this guy had to leave. He had business. He had to go. He did what he could do to take care of the person and to extend that care. I mean, he, he went to the, to, the, to the nth degree, as we say, right? He did that. I guess you could say he did what he could, and he did more. In this case, it was significant. And even to some extent, what, what role do you believe sovereignty plays in all that? Do you think that my life and your life, that they don't cross wherever they cross at God's direction? Well, we know that they do. So the, the focal point here, I say again, I think, is the end of verse 33, where for whatever reason, this person felt compassion for an absolute stranger, but somebody who was in a destitute situation. They could not take care of their situation. And he did what he could do. The lawyer said, and he interpreted it as an act of mercy, the one who showed mercy on him. And in that, Christ just responds by saying, well, this is what you need to do. You, you need to go and do the exact same thing. 
And of course, he was addressing issues, as only Christ can do. He was addressing issues in this, this lawyer's own life and heart. He knew that's what he needed to hear. Right? Do we listen? You often hear me talk about listening to the voice of God. And when I say that, I hope you understand. I'm not talking about you know, some mystical something. God speaks through His Word. He speaks through His Spirit. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. I think there are other sects of Christians who might talk about listening to the voice of God as if they're getting some kind of unique, specific, direct revelation. I'm not talking about that. But God reveals to us what our needs are. This is exactly what He's doing when He's teaching these six things here. Again, He's asking us to look at this deeply. Look at our hearts. Examine those priorities. Take an inventory, if you will. That's what He's asking. That's what He's asking. Jesus added here in verse 43 of chapter 5 in Matthew, He said, you've added this, you're to hate your enemy. That's what you guys say, He says. You love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. And this doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. No directive from God. They would go to Psalm 139. If you were to turn there and you would read a piece from David there where he says, you know, do, Lord, do I not hate those that hate you and so on and so forth. And David's talking about giving himself over. Look, as we say, some things in the Word of God are not all, they're, they're descriptive is the word. They're not necessarily directive or, yeah, prescriptive or whatever. And yet, I, I don't think that really helps to explain that verse in full because uh, he's described, even though David had his faults, he's described as a man after God's own heart. We know this was, this was not what typified David's heart, or else he would have killed Saul the first time he had an opportunity, or maybe on the second opportunity, you know, because Saul was definitely his enemy. We hate evil. We hate the results of evil. And if we're not careful, we will associate those acts with the individual and the individual's worth. That's the business of God and not us. So we have to keep that straight. You really have to do that in my line of work. You know, Not so much now that I just work in training, but uh, when you're on the road and you're answering calls and you're doing all these kind of things, and Andy was a homicide investigator, and you just see the, the, the horribleness of it. You know, it's very tempting to focus that evil on that individual to the point that we forget about the glorious, the marvelous, transforming grace of God. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We tell the truth. We respond according to the truth. We hate the evil. We hate that. We hate sin. But we don't hate the person. We don't. Because that person can change. We may not see it. We may be of a mind, I've never seen a person who acts like you, who's done the things that you do, ever change. That don't mean they can't. Because the, the fact of the matter is that they can. And that they have. So we pray that that would happen. Keeping first things first. Well, they had a lot to overcome. It's easy to see if you go back and look from a historical perspective uh, how the religious Jews got to this point. 
found some information about the Essenes. You remember them. They were a, a sect of Jews, very ascetic, very disciplined in what they did. These were the uh, people who had a, a lot of rules, you know, a lot of laws to follow. They, even, they held all their property in common. This kind of defined them. And there's some information, I understand, that was actually found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, information that had been authored by the Essens. And it said plainly that they were to hate the children of darkness. And you find these kinds of phrases throughout. Hate the children of darkness. Here he refers to enemies or hating your enemies. And this could be any, any person who is hostile or any person uh, who is against you, know, you in any way, holding something against you. If the Jews thought about this, when they thought about their enemies, they probably first and foremost just thought of a person who was not a Jew. They looked at it from a national perspective, nationalism if you will. If you wanted to know who your neighbor was, that would be a fellow Jew. If you were not, if you were a Gentile, then you were an enemy. And again, they felt justified in those beliefs. One medieval scholar wrote that Jews, here it is, Jews were not to kill Gentiles with whom they were not at war, but they were not to intervene to save the life of a Gentile if they found themselves in that kind of of a situation. Again, we go back to Leviticus 19. Looking at verse 33 and 34, we find there, when a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there you see it. To respond to a person in a, in a way that is less than loving, according to that Word of God, would indicate that you've lost sight of what you yourself have been redeemed from, what you have come from, how needy you were. And that's important. That's very important. That we don't ever, and we've covered this before, we don't ever want to lose that realization, that understanding of what we were before Christ reached into our life, before the Word of God took hold in our life to the point that we confessed our sins, we saw our need for a Savior, and we turned to Christ. We know beyond that what we have and enjoy. The blessings of this life are at the hand and will of God. It's not got anything to do with us. No. As we say in common everyday terms, we don't bring anything to the table. (laughs) We don't. We come receiving what the Lord God has for us. And the good things in life come from Him. They come from Him. Well, I say to you, he says in verse 44, he says, you need to love your enemies. Love your enemies and do what? Pray for those who persecute you. So again, Christ dis- displays His authority. You've heard this, but now I'm telling you this. And I can imagine how this gripped the hearts of the people as He was talking to them. 
Love here in context demands either a continuous or habitual action, if you look at the words specifically. It's an undying love that doesn't wane or grow cold in the face of an enemy's abuse. It's that kind of love. That kind of love. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And here again, an enemy, the one who persecutes the Christian disciple. That's what he's talking about. They do it as an expression of hatred for the Christian faith. Christ made this motive clear, if you remember, back in chapter 11, or or verse 11, rather, of chapter 5, when we were looking, when he talked about praying for those who insult you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you, back in in verse 11 of this same chapter. What does praying for your enemies do? What does that do? What's the impact of praying for your enemies? What happens there? Right. Well, well said. It changes you. It, it changes your motivations. It causes you to look within, probably look at your own self first as we, as we mentioned. What else does it do? Talking about prayer and the, the effects of prayer. Right. I think that would be comparable with getting the beam out of your own eye, as Christ would say and has said. What about on the other end? What does praying do? What about the person you're praying for? What happens there? Do you ever see any change? Have you ever seen change? Or does it always seem like, no, it's just always you that changes. (laughs) Okay? Do you ever see change on the other end? Can anybody testify to that? Yes. Prayer has been answered. Eyes have been opened. The scales have fallen off. People have seen. They've become aware. They've humbled themselves. They've confessed. They've asked for forgiveness. Yes. And it's a tragedy when we see less and less and less of that. Correct? That's what we do. That is to be our response. That's what He tells us to do. Pray for those who persecute you. And this word, persecute, that's a, uh, this is often the world's response to biblical truth. Being lived out in the life of a person, a Christian, is it not? When you're targeted because of what you believe. We'll never escape this. We are to expect this. Paul says, you're called for this. We're to expect it. It's going to happen. It's just testimony that we're on the right playing field, okay? We're dealing with somebody who needs intervention. We shouldn't expect them to act in any other way. And that's what we do as believers. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 parallel verse he says but i say to you here love your enemies do good to those who to who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who mistreat you and you realize of course <laughs> if you're dealing with a person who's an unbeliever that our approach to them our response to them in this fashion is literally 
the Lord using us to display a type of, if you will, common grace in their life. Do you realize that? And this is part of what we are to do. Not just love one another. It says that people will know that we're Christians within the faith, uh, community of faith in the church. We love one another. But we already read, and even from Le- Leviticus, we're to love those who are outside. We're to care for them. And now we can speak the full truth to them in their life. That is what we're supposed to do. And again, it's God's demonstration by example here of a common grace in their life. He does that through us. Spurgeon said, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. And that's what we want. We've experienced mercy in our life. In that, remember the def, the definition? We have not received what we deserve. And we can display grace in the lives of others because that's been displayed in our life. We can respond to people in a way perhaps that they don't deserve. We can give them what they do not deserve, but we display the love of God in the way that we do that. You know, th- this is important for our own well-being as well. Because to operate apart from this, to maintain, to harbor bitterness, to take abuse directed at us for the wrong reasons or whatever, or maybe we were at fault in something, we just were up against somebody who has an unforgiving spirit, and we can't find an end to this issue. To be able to understand that God is in the middle of this, God is using us, God will use our loving and obedient example to to effect change in a person's life. And this sometimes is the only satisfaction, the only peace that we have in a situation. You know what I'm saying? Because ultimately we don't have any control over how a person responds. But we can respond every time as Christ would have us to respond. Prayer, as He said again, is the forerunner of mercy. We pray And another quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He says, Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Is that our attitude? Do we really believe that positive and effective change can come out of that? Not that it's just the direction of God. That's enough, I admit. But we have hope in that. Because we're obedient to the Lord in those things. Look at verse 45. He says that we're to do this. That we're to love our enemies. And we're to pray for those who persecute. Verse 44. And then he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, this ultimate judgment is in God's hands, right? It's not in our hands. It's in God's hands. And this word maybe here, it's actually one word that's translated as the phrase maybe, indicates a once and for all established fact. What that means is, Because we realize the love that's been imparted to us, the goodness that God has 
placed in our heart. This is what allows us, if we haven't lost sight of that, this is what allows us to respond lovingly to others. Right? That's what he's saying. And when we do that, he says, it's a testimony to the fact that that something very real has happened in our life. This is, this is so out of the ordinary. This is so uh, non-human, non-natural, and talking about in the natural state, that it stands out. This is how people know. This is why he says people will know that we're from God, that we're different because of the way we love and care for one another. We've had opportunities before as we've been teaching through this, and I've shared a couple of things that have happened in my life, in my work life, where just an opportunity to respond to a person in grace does more for the situation at hand at that moment and in the future. And I don't want to, I don't want to convey, I wanted to say it, it frees God up to do what He's going to do. That's a bad way to say it. It, it keeps us from being part of the problem, I guess, is a better way to say it. First things first. And we respond to people in love. We see it throughout the Bible. You know, I think about Paul and, and, and Moses. If I think I'm right in saying they're the only two people who said, look, if, if you're not going to change these people, if these people wind up missing heaven and going to heaven, boy, I'm paraphrasing now, he says, then blot my name out of the book. Both of them said that. Or like Stephen who's praying and saying, Lord, is he's, be, is he's being stoned to death and he's saying, don't lay this sin to their charge to say nothing of Christ's own outcry from the cross. Lord, okay, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's this kind of attitude, this kind of, of heart that we're to have. This will change us and it will change others. It'll change others. So when they see this, he uses this phrase here. It means it's it's nailed down. It's it's a done, a done deal. So that they may be sons of your Father in heaven. They may be readily recognized without a doubt. This person belongs to God because their actions their attitude, their words, their tone, their timing, all these things indicate that their heart is right. John 13.35, the verse I've been quoting by this, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Love can be hard, can it not? People don't want to hear the truth sometimes. If somebody's running from the truth, if they're thinking truly that they can live one way, which is <laughs> they can live in sin usually, they can do what they want to do, God will still hear and God will still answer their prayers. They'll still be right with God. They don't want to hear the truth. And again, we're back to that phrase, that, that scripture from Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak it in love. Don't take the power out of it. Don't interject something from your own personality or your own faults and failings that's going to hinder the Word of God. Say it like it's meant to be said. And let the power of the Lord rest upon it. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our influence per se. 
He just needs a clean, willing, obedient vessel. That's what he needs. Loving others as God does is evidence that we belong to him. We show that we're his sons. And it's easy to see that as Jesus is teaching through these six things here, that he's more concerned about character than he is status. He's concerned about what's within us, what makes us tick, what makes us think and act as we do. And in this verse of Scripture here, he adds that it's God, says, for He causes His Son, He put it there, His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. I think one of the best studies, personal studies I've ever been involved in, of course it reflects my transformation in my own theology, but was to read the Bible through one year and to as best as I could literally mark every single verse that had anything to do with the sovereignty of God. And I had quite a list. It was like 190-something passages, not just verses, but passages. Some of them were a single verse. And I still have that document. <laughs> And then I went back and I took that and then I came up with different categories like God's sovereignty and salvation, God's sovereignty among the nations or whatever. And I just came up with about eight or nine different topics. And then I went back and I grouped all those scriptures just to get a handle on the sovereignty of God. And I'm telling you, it'll make you start bawling and run out of the room and down the street because he's just so much bigger than I ever had realized. And I get you get such you get such confidence out of that. You get such a sense of security out of that. I hurt, Lord. I, I really need to say something to this person. They've hurt me really bad. I think I'll feel better if I can get this out of my heart and uh, through my lips and direct it toward this person. And that's never true. That'll work. It's a matter of Christian discipline. It's a matter of the power of Christ within us to be able to say, even in the midst, as we've read, even in the midst of those who are abusing us and mistreating us at that moment, we've got to pull away from that and literally, in a very practical way, say, Lord, what, what are you doing here? What's happening here? What do you want me to do. And just that turning alone pulls us away from the attack, right? At least momentarily, so that we can, and when I say hear the voice of God, reflect upon His Word and see Him work in a life that's changed and given over to Him, that has a proper perspective about what it means to truly love. Because it's always about giving. It's never about getting. For those of you who are about to be married, anybody in here like that? I don't know. This just hit me. If you're here, I don't know. Know that. Love is about giving. It's not about getting. And you'll do well. Again, a reflection upon the common grace of God. He causes His Son to rise. He sends the rain. He's in charge of all that. He bestows it as He sees fit. In His timing, God will do that. That's His work to do. 
Psalm 145 verses 15 and 16 says this in that regard. It says, The eyes of all look to you, talking about God, and you, God, give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's our God. That's what He does. And lastly, we'll get to, well, no, we got three verses. Verse 46, If you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, in that day and time, it would be interesting for us to again understand, he he mentions the tax collectors, okay? And depending upon his group, if it was a religious group, they shuddered, okay? They turned away. They they began to grunt and growl because they, they just absolutely loathed the tax collector. And we've seen this emerge time and time again, as we've looked, particularly in Matthew. But Christ uses it by way of example, once again, to teach us to love the unlovely. And here, if you, if you love those who love you, or only those, what he's saying, what reward do you have? What's that? That's suspect. You love people who love you. They give you something. They give you their time. They give you their love. They give you kind words. They may give you a present. Whatever. And he says the tax collectors do the same. Now, try to take that in like his audience would have taken that in. She know better than a tax collector is what he told them, okay? They didn't like hearing that. And he uses this example. And I would remind you, I've given you information before about tax collectors, but I have a little more extensive list here. Listen to this. They were despised, of course, as traitors and thieves. They were ritually defiled, ritually, religiously defiled. They were not salaried, but received a modest commission, and they elevated tax amounts to increase their own income. They were national Jews who collected taxes for an occupying government, the Roman government. That's why they were hated. The people called them licensed robbers. That's what they were called. The Babylonian Talmud listed the profession as the most despised trade, that of a tax collector. Their entrance into a Jewish home left the entire home defiled. Had to be cleaned up. Jewish law forbade the handling of money that had been touched by a tax collector. I don't know how they got around that. Beggars by law were not to receive money from tax collectors. You're a beggar, you're hurting, and you're not to receive money from a tax collector. Tax collectors could serve uh, as, uh, or could not serve as judges or testify in court. Jewish law gave them no more rights than a Gentile slave. Now, this is the character that Christ uses that He sets up before the people here and says, if you just love those who love you, you know better than this. You know better than this. There is a different kind of love, if you will. There's a different level. It is supernatural. It comes as the result of a person who has been changed by the Word and power of God. The Bible says that that person literally possesses the Holy Spirit of God living within them. And that's why if you give yourself the test and you find yourself to be deficient in that area, that raises a serious question. Does it not? And that's exactly what he's trying to get them to do. To look at their own heart to that degree. Verse 47, he says, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Talking about social interaction. 
If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Remember, we've already said they would consider the Gentiles generally as their enemy. The common greeting in that day was, of course you know, was shalom. Peace be with you. Okay. The Greek form of that means joy be with you. And the indication is there were people who would not cross the room or the street or whatever to extend that kind of greeting, maybe to somebody they might even be in business with. They wouldn't do that. Only those who are in their particular camp were to be different. The standard is higher for the child of God. We're to be, as I often say, noticeably different. We talk about those verses that say we're to stand out. We are to be a peculiar people. Those people who love and care for one another in such a loving way. Even history, the writings of Josephus, I hit upon those every now and then in studying. This, seems, this is something that pops up about Christians from a historical perspective many times. And by that I mean they were, the writers back then would remark upon the examples of love even to the point about how when they were being persecuted, even to the point of death, that they were praying for their tormentors. They understood the Scripture. They understood the teaching. And that they would give when they had virtually nothing to give. They would continue to give even out of their poverty. Last verse, verse 48. Therefore, Christ says, After laying all this out there, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here's a good example about the necessity of study. When I read that word, what's the first thing you think, the word perfect, what do you think came to my mind? What came to your mind? Perfect. What does he mean? It's what he says, but what does he mean? What does that English translated word mean? You are to be perfect. What do we most often say? Am I assuming too much here? Usually it's associated with the word mature, right? But that's not what it means here. You'd never know that if you didn't look at it. T-E-L-E-I-O-I is the word in the Greek. But it's a reference here not to maturity, but to moral perfection. Staying clean. Not maturity. A commitment to be morally Clean is what he's talking about. What is the relationship here? Why a reference to being morally clean following all this about love and so forth? How does one affect the other? If we don't love rightly, the implication here is clearly that it affects our moral cleanliness. Now you can begin to see, okay, if I'm not thinking rightly about love, how, what possible situation could I find myself in that would cause me to either think or do, or maybe a sin of omission, to do something that would show me to be morally unclean. It says in so many words that love, and the right kind of love, being thankful in our heart, a love that grows out of our thanksgiving, our uh, appreciation, if you will, of what God has done in our life, which results in a humility, affects the way that we respond in a, in a number of situations in our life. 
We're to be perfect. We're to be morally perfect. Now, we, we understand that. This is a challenge. This is not a status to be achieved. This is a, a desire. This is a commitment. A commitment to evaluate things that come into our life. To ensure that they are loving and that they reflect a loving attitude toward others. Deuteronomy 18.13 goes all the way back. You must be blameless. And that word again is a derivative of this word. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. You know, we have the privilege of knowing and understanding in this life, this side of the cross, having the the book complete. We have it. We have it to review, to study. We have a power to pursue perfection. We have that power that nobody else has. Again, I say, we understand. We don't, we'll never get there. We'll never get there. But it is a futile attempt. It is a futile effort to try to do what the Lord challenges us to do apart from the fullness of His Spirit. And I say fullness because we can quench the Spirit, right? We can grieve it as believers. And if we try to approach God with sin on our heart, that's exactly what we're doing. Today's Lord's Supper. We have an opportunity. If we hadn't already done it, we'll have an opportunity here in a little bit to look within our heart. We always do that here, do we not? We examine our heart. There's an opportunity to say, Lord, I'm not going to take of that cup. I'm not going to do that until I confess and until I forsake whatever it is that's in my heart. God is a discerner of the heart. And we want to approach Him in love and in obedience for what He has done for us. So how do we love? Why do we love? Do we do it with a full recognition and understanding of what God has done for us? That's what He desires and that's what He requires out of our lives.